If you've already registered, you'll be given preference. Otherwise, you will be allowed into the venue on a first-come, first-served basis. And this is at Bodrum 3. And um, yeah, you're encouraged to attend. If you're unable to attend, you can leave your details at the registration desk for workshops at a later stage. Uh, so this morning, uh, we are honored to have uh, Shoaib and Lucas presenting to us. Uh, as I said earlier, on allowing for changes in general business environments in claims reserves. Uh, Shaib and Lucas are both managers at the Deloitte Short-Term Insurance Consulting uh, Division. And I must say, having listened to you guys uh, at the Short-Term Insurance Seminar in August, speaking on an automated reserving process, I'm really looking forward to your talk today. So guys, uh, the floor is yours. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I don't know where the rest is. Maybe it's just because it's the second day. They'll come in at 11, I'm sure. Okay, so basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to talk to you through how to incorporate a bit of kind of pricing methodologies into your reserving. And the reason why we're talking to you about this today is uh, basically, before we get to that, let's maybe just talk about me for a while because I'm up here. Uh, so I am a very lazy person. I don't like effort. I will do more effort today to avoid effort tomorrow and the day afterwards and the day afterwards. Uh, and I actually grew up in a pricing background within the actuarial society. So I like building my little fancy models and then deploying them and kind of leaving them there. So I recently had a bit of a shock to the system where I changed job and had now had to be confronted with reserving. So I thought, I understand reserving, do a basic chain ladder, maybe born to Ferguson, you know, smooth that out. That's good. No, it's not. Reserving, it's an art. It's not a science. And I saw this. I saw this firsthand. I looked at the actuaries at, uh, at Deloitte when they're doing the reserving analysis. They kind of create the triangle and then they step back. They stare at the screen. They stare into the screen. They look at these development factors. They look for their trends. They look for their changes. They kind of subjectively change this one, add this one here. Let's smooth this out. Step back, look at some 3D graph that only they understand. And then I say, make a little change here, add something else, and then the reserve is done. And it's like, okay, cool. How'd you do that? Professional judgment. And that, for me, just seems like a lot of effort. Uh, and for a lazy guy like me, that doesn't work. So I chatted to one of these guys that actually knows how to do reserving, which is Swabe. And if you're a client of mine, I've started figuring it out. Don't worry. Uh, so... I've started chatting to Swab is, okay, how can we actually incorporate more of the pricing techniques that I'm familiar with into the reserving process to remove this need to actually apply judgment at this level or even actually remove the subjectivity of the judgment at this level? So that's basically what we're going to take you through today. So we're taking you through two examples. So one is a real-world example that we actually did. Uh, with an insurance, and the other one is just a more theoretical concept and something to dream for. The first one being, how can you enhance your existing triangulation approach just by incorporating some simple linear modeling into your residuals or the residuals of your triangle? And the second one is taking a bit of a page from our life insurance colleagues uh, and modeling a claim through each of the states as it progresses and develops over time. So before we actually jump into the actual uh, modeling exercise and the drivers, uh, the modeling exercise, I'd actually want to take some time to just explore some of the drivers behind the claim process. So I'm doing this, one, to full time, and two, also to give you an idea of why 
what we're proposing is actually not that big a stretch for a short-term insurance company. And that a lot of this information that we're talking about and a lot of the principles that we are talking about uh, would be available to a short-term insurer and it can actually be used quite easily by a short-term insurer. Uh, so when we're talking through the processes, we'll actually be using uh, a motor, motor lines of business as an example, just because it's like readily available and most people understand what goes in there. Uh, but everything that we talk about here is still relevant to any other class of business as well in any other type of claim. So I think this might actually be more relevant to property, where you, property triangles and reserving where you actually manage to combine a lot of different class of business into one single triangle. So let's look at how a claim comes to be, if it were. So you basically start off with the event. If something happens to you, and then you kind of have to decide who to let know. So you could either let your intermediary know, or your broker know, or you'd let your insurer know. Uh, following on from this is uh, the insurer would then decide whether they would want to play your claim or not. So they might have it assessed, they might approve some forensic investigator to look at it, and then they'd either authorize or reject the claim. At this point in time, your claim actually then shatters into a bunch of different little claims. So you might have a, a uh, you know, panel beater component or a repair component, uh, and while you don't have a car, you'll have a car hire component. If you drove into somebody else or somebody drove into you, uh, there'd be a component for legal recoveries and liabilities. And if you completely wrote off your car, uh, the insurer will sell it for scrap metal and you'll have a salvage component. And then each little part of your claim will have its own little settlement delays. Okay, so that's kind of the framework that we're going to be working into. And I'm going to be digging into each one of these transitions in a bit more detail going in the presentation. So if we start off with your reporting delay, so the cost that we have here is we have no cost uh, whatsoever, so that's why we actually raise our IBNR. Uh, so then we actually need to kind of think of, okay, what would influence this reporting delay itself? So your line of business or uh, your distribution method will influence this. So the mix of people that you have on intermediated books and on your direct books will make a bit of a difference because your intermediated stuff, you could either have your broker on your own administration system, which means you'll get the claims fairly quickly, but you might get your claims in a Bordero format, which will mean... Uh, you know, you might get it only at the end of the month or at the end of the week. But as this process changes, it can also have a significant impact on how your reserves change over time. Now, if we look at just more general factors Im impacting on your reporting delay, is you'd see time of year is probably the most easy one to think about. So if you kind of scratch your car or bump your car while you're on holiday, you'll say, look, that's January's problem. I'm not going to worry about that right now. So you take a bit of time. So that will happen in, uh, you know, April and in December, which you can see. Similarly, you can see the impact of perils and severity on your reporting delay. So if you write off your car, is hopefully you would be aware that you've written off your car immediately. Similarly, if you have a little scratch on your windscreen, like you might go a couple of weeks without even noticing it's there. So similarly, is you have other kind of uh, claims, so theft, uh, other damage that's not uh, immediately visible will take a while to pick up. Uh, and then type of asset. So from a vehicle point of view, you'd look at, for example, what kind of car you are insuring or the, 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 the sum insured of the average cars on your book. Uh, because there's a big difference of whether you scratch a Bentley and whether you scratch a 1984. You know, the Bentley is that thing needs to look on fleek all the time. Uh, and a Ford is, you know, what's one will scratch. Uh, I hope the youth used the, enjoyed the usage on, of on fleek. Uh, then 
you can also look at the operational changes within your own insurer. So a lot of insurers are now moving towards a platform where they're encouraging clients to register claims on uh, an app or on a website, which actually reduces a lot of the hassle associated with actually phoning into your insurer and then submitting your claim. So you might see clients then uh, being more willing to report their claims a lot quicker and just getting it out of the way. Uh, another thing that we've, we've seen with a couple of insurers that have telematics products is they can identify when there was severe impacts on your claims. So in doing that, they can actually then phone the client and say, look, is everything okay, and would you like to register a claim? So your reporting delay can actually be instantaneous in some of these claims. So once your claim is reported, we now need to decide whether we want to pay it or not. So let's just look at what happens when it's reported. Is Your insurer would probably raise a global estimate at this point in time. So this estimate might be set across the average of claims across all line of, lines of business, but it might also be per payroll if it's a bit more granular at that point in time. Uh, and then they'll also just keep an IBNER for how accurately they think their guessing has been. Once this has been done, they'll now decide, okay, let's probably get a better idea of what this claim is. So they'll send it for assessment. So they'll either ask a uh, client to go get a couple of quotes himself, or they'll ask a loss adjuster or investigator to go look at this thing. Uh, so if we look at some of like the drivers and the impact on these, these reporting delay or this authorization delay is we'll see time of year again an impact. Uh, one, due to just a squeeze on capacity as a result of assessors and providers going on leave and being away, but you also have a bit more of a seasonal impact there. So for example, in the summer months in Gauteng, uh, with a lot of hail claims coming through is there's another squeeze on capacity, so that actually increases that delay a bit more. If we're looking at your peril and severity, you might have for uh, very low-valued claims or claims with expected low value, you might actually do very limited uh, assessment and claim underwriting at that point in time and just opt to settle the claim as, you, as quickly as you can, while your bigger claims will typically have uh, a lot more effort going into. And it also look at the type of assets. So, for example, if you just look at theft claims in isolation, there might not be a lot of assessment there. But if a Ferrari goes missing, you better go looking for it, right? Uh, and then we can also look at operational changes. So when people, uh, when insurance companies change their assessment process, so they might say, okay, look, we'll assess any claim with the expected value of over 10,000 Rand, uh, and they've changed that to 15,000 Rand for some reason, you know, you need to have a look at that as well, and that will have an impact on your triangle. Now, at the settlement delays, uh, once you've kind of authorized your claims, you'll raise your final case estimate and also hold an IBNR, ER, depending on how good the guessing was, uh, and then you'll actually wait for that claim to be settled. So this is very much dependent on different components of each component of the claim that you're looking at. So your repair claim and your car hire might be very similar in terms of, in terms of settlement because it's the same number of days that will drive both. Uh, but your legal recovery will and liability claims will have a completely different pattern than everything else. Uh, so that's typically why we actually slip them out uh, when we're doing our reserving. But to understand how this, the delay changes, we can look at the severity of the claim. Higher valued claims are expected to take longer to repair, but this is not necessarily the case because if you think of write-off claims, you know, you'd pay cash very quickly. Uh, so it's where you kind of are very close to that right of limit where you'd expect to see a long severity time. Uh, you'd have to look at the asset types that you're actually currently, uh, that's currently being claimed for. So for example, imported cars will have uh, to wait for parts to be, to come to South Africa uh, and also increasing the time. So this will also then, as this delay increases, have a further impact on your ultimate settlement amount since 
the longer your claim is expected to take to finalize, the more volatility there is associated with the, with the final amount. Uh, we can then look at some other information, such as who is actually performing the work. So there might be panel beaters that are really, really good with repairing one type of car, but can't do another type of car. Uh, so if you have the wrong type of car with the wrong type of panel beater, you might have a very, very long uh, settlement delay. And then you also have systems and operational changes. So something to think about here is basically how frequently you pay uh, your claim. So if you had in the past, let's say, a monthly payment run, and you've changed to a weekly or uh, bi-weekly payment run, you know, that will impact your, your payment triangle. And you need to think about how you can actually allow for these, these changes. Okay, so now that I've kind of given you the foundation of where we, of what is exactly happening within the claims process, uh, I hope you can kind of start thinking about, I have this data and we could do this. And it's actually kind of quite obvious. And then to just help you understand of like how actually easy this is to do, Schwab will take us through what we're currently doing with respect to uh, our reserving and what we've added onto this to improve the reserving. Thanks, Lucas. So what are we currently doing? The first step in any reserving process is to get the data. And this is obviously uh, easier said than done. But assuming you've got it, you'll try and create some triangles. If you can't create the triangles, you'll probably use industry factors or some sort of benchmarking but in SA, that um, is usually interim measures. And if you're at this point, it, I think you have problems that we won't be able to solve in this presentation. But assuming you have your triangles, uh, you'll create a basic chain letter, you might even do an incremental loss ratio method or an average cost per claim method. Now, by a large margin, the basic chain letter is what most people use, uh, but they won't just use that as is they'll make some adjustments to the development period as needed. And I'll go into the reasons for adjustment uh, in the next slides. But this adjustment is very manual. So you might take out a few outliers, you might fit a curve to the later part of your development, or you might even fit a tail if you think that's what's needed. Uh, a lot of judgment obviously goes into that process. There are a few analytic ways as well of adjusting development factors like the Berkowitz-Sherman method or the munich chain letter method. Um, but we don't see that widely used in South Africa, uh, but internationally they are. I mean, I'll let you guess where the Munich chain letter is quite popular. Uh, the, the next step then is to incorporate some sort of loss ratio assumption. The reason for this is to account for the lack of data in the latest accident periods. And the BF is usually the method of choice for doing this. And if there is um, an independent loss ratio assumption, such as a Pleistone loss ratio, this is used. But more often than not, the loss ratios of more developed periods are looked at, trends identified, and judgment applied to select your independent loss ratio assumption. Um, in cases where data is very sparse, an ultimate loss ratio might just be selected and used. Uh, you will also see a few people using the Cape Cod or the generalized Cape Cod, especially if they feel uncomfortable applying judgment on the loss ratio and will go for more an analytic approach. And then the reserve is got, you, you get your final reserve. So if you take a step back, you can see our current process is very dependent on triangles and with not a lot of backing information. So let's look in more detail what are the problems of triangles or the problems associated with triangles. So the first is heterogeneity. So this would be where different claim types develop differently, so a theft claim develops differently from a windshield claim. 
Uh, it can even be caused by claim sizes. So attritional claims develop very differently to large or cat claims. And under this current approach, what we'll do is we'll try to split out the triangles, but this has a problem with creating credible triangles to actually run our methods. Or in the case of cats or large loss, we might just exclude it from the triangle, but this is throwing away inf valuable information. The next issue with triangles is seasonality. So seasonality comes in two varieties, origin period, uh, those that impact origin periods and those that have calendar impact. So on the origin impact, you'd have things like weather events. So rain in the summer month increases the number of motor vehicle accidents and the claims, uh, and even more hail. So cat Cat, the cat event uh, in the case of hail follows a seasonal pattern. On the calendar year impact, we'll see things like holiday periods resulting in slower development of claims. Um, we'll also see at like financial year and a speed up in the processing of claims because companies want to hold lower reserves. And we also see some sort of interaction. So whether claims result in more claims, decrease the capacity uh, available for claim staff, resulting in a calendar year effect. So seasonality does act across calendar year and origin period. Sorry. So how do we deal, this, deal with this? We deal with it by applying judgment. That's probably the, because each one is so specific, we'd have to look at the triangles and decide how to adjust our development periods, our development patterns, and we might even use multiple development patterns. The next one is operational changes. So this would be changes in processing, changes in supplying, suppliers, or even software platforms that might increase the speed at which claims are reported. Settlement process, again, it's usually judgment is used to um, make the adjustments, but you will see there are a few analytic methods like the Berkowitz-Sherman, which restates the historical triangle. However, if you use that, you do throw away valuable information. So putting that all together, and you don't need to try to read the slide, I guess the point is there's just a lot. Because there's so much, firstly, identifying what's influencing your pattern can be a challenge. And then fixing it, an, a challenge as well. Uh, especially when you see these, these different factors interact with each other. So if you haven't got the point at this point, there's a lot of judgment going in, which is why I would say it's an art and a science. <laughs> So what we propose is an enhancement to the current triangulation method. This is the, as the first approach. So what, what, is, the what is the current uh, chain ladder approach? We calculate development factors for each column, and we use that to plot the bottom right-hand side of the triangle, or to project the bottom, bottom right-hand side of the triangle. Now, if we think about it, those development factors are averages across the column, but individual accident years will deviate from the average. So I've added a residual term that illustrates this. So what we are now going to try to do is take that residual term and see if we can use factors such as origin attributes, development attributes, exposure or claim attributes to explain away uh, some of that residual uh, or the, the differences caused by the residual term. So since we are plotting a residual, or since we are trying to project or offer a model to the residuals, we'll start off by standardizing the residuals. We do this by taking the individual cell development factor, subtracting the column development factor, and then dividing it by the overall column's uh, standard deviation. We assume, or at least in theory, this should be normally distributed with, uh, and we assume that. Uh, if you look at the graph on the right, you can see this was the case for the data set we were using. The next step was then to express the individual cell's development factor 
uh, in terms by rearranging that residual formula. So what we then have is we then have the column development factor plus a standard deviation plus some term Z. We then fit a linear model to the term Z um, to explain the deviation from the overall development factor. So what was the process that we followed to implement this? The first step was we got the data, we created our triangles, we calculated the development factors, and we calculated the standard residuals. At this point, it's pretty much what you would do in most reserving exercises. The next step was we then enriched the data with columns such as the percentage of claims under each peril, so the percentage of accident claims, theft claims. We added the average claim age, we added percentage paid, and a few other factors. And then we standardized these across the development period. The reason for standardizing it was an item like the average claim age would increase by 30 days for each development period. So by standardizing it, it allows us to group together the different development periods when we came to modeling. The last step was a bit of an iterative process. Now that we had all our information and the data we needed, we tried to identify which of these factors were significant. We also tried to identify which development periods we should group together. And then we fit a linear model and we tested our fit. And we repeated this until we were happy with the model we produced. So in the end, we ended up fitting three distinct models. We fit one model for the first development period, so development period one to two, uh, for another for two to three and three to four, and a third model for all the development periods beyond four. And this made sense because we found uh, the factors that drove each of these development periods differed. So in the first development period, you'd have a lot more of claims being reported, global estimates being raised, and some revisions to those estimates. While in two to three and three to four, you see mostly the revisions of global estimates, the settlement of claims, and in period four onwards, you'll see salvages coming through um, recoveries uh, and late, late settled claims. So these are two of the models that we ended up fitting and the factors uh, that we found to be significant. So for development periods one to two, we found event type to be significant uh, because the reporting of different events uh, and the claims associated differ. Right? So as the, mix of as the mix of claims changed, so did the development factor. Uh, claim age we also found to be significant, but I'll deal with that in the next slide. The percentage of catastrophe claims, because again, catastrophe claims develop differently. Uh, the paid claim ratio, because the, the percentage of claims that had been paid would affect how much future development there is. Uh, and the average premium, as that's a proxy for risk, uh, and the region, and a few other items. On development period four onwards, we only found two factors to be significant, being, and those being calendar month and paid ratio. So if you just look at the paid ratio, that pretty much takes you close to a Munich chain letter. Um, and then the, develop, uh, sorry, the calendar month explaining away seasonality. So just digging into a few of these in a bit more detail, uh, the claim age had a clear, col clear correlation. As the claim age increased, so did the size of the link ratio. Um, this graph is looking at, a, at the X and the year variable. So if you look at the graph on the right, you can see a clear change in uh, pattern or process change. Uh, so the graph is calendar month and link ratio on the y-axis. And around towards the end of 2016, there was a change. So accident year variable accounts for it. So the reason why it will account for this is because of the first development period. So the accident year and the calendar year um, are pretty much the same. Finally, the results. Uh, there are three graphs here. The first being, so this graph is the mean squared error. Uh, we use that as a way to, to, to measure the fit of each of the models. So you can see the mean squared error of the basic chain error 
And on the far right, you can see the mean squared error of the model we fit. So there was a 40% reduction in the mean squared error of the model that we fit. We also fit a partial model. And in the partial model, all we fit were the calendar year, calendar month, accident year, accident month, and development period. And even that resulted in a 30% uh, reduction in the mean squared error. And I think this sort of makes a point that even with just a triangle, you could have a massive improvement in your model. And if you have more factors, which I think in your claims data you do, you can have significant improvements. So what were the benefits? Uh, the first was increased accuracy, and by this mean we meant uh, a model that fit better. Uh, we also converted a lot of what would have otherwise been a judgment call into something that's object that can be objectively measured and verified. You could measure the impact of seasonality. You could measure the impact of change in mix, what otherwise you would have had to apply your judgment to decide upon. It's very flexible because you can change which factors you include. Um, and it also gives you a lot of insight into what drives your claims development. We also found that the variability decreased. This can be seen by the reduction in the mean squared error. And this has the advantage, especially if you're holding a percentile um, reserve of reducing your risk margin. And again, this is a well-established methodology. I mean, everyone here should be very familiar with linear modeling, hopefully. And uh, it's, it's very easy to implement. The drawbacks, however, is that it does take some time to set it up initially. Also, finding significant factors can be difficult. Although decision trees can help with this, and overfitting is always a risk. And that's why it's very important to make sure that you understand the underlying business and have insight into what the actual drivers are so that that can inform your factor selection. So I hope at the end of this you kind of will at least give this a try. Um, but Lucas will now take us through a state model that does away with triangles completely. Okay. So that was actually quite, quite easy. It wasn't that painful, was it? So we decided to do something that is actually quite painful, so something that you actually need a lot of data for. So we decided to kind of take a page out of the, the Life Actuary's book and then said, okay, can we model a claim from moving from one stage to the next and then modeling the associated cost at each point in time at, and at each, each transition? So revisiting the graph from the past, we can basically see the normal journey. So event, reporting, authorizing, and then settling it. So I know a lot of actuaries don't like pictures, so I've decided to draw the same picture, just in a slightly different way that might be more appealing to the actuarial audience as a transition matrix. So we can see we basically go from having no claim to having a claim, from a claim to being reported, from a reported claim being either authorized or rejected, uh, authorized claim either being rejected or settled, the rejected claim could be settled again if the ombudsman ruled against you, and then for the purposes of this exercise, a settled claim will stay settled, even though in practice that might not necessarily be the case. But this is kind of what we're working with, and we can actually then you know, model the transition times between these, uh, and it's not that big a stretch if you have the data. So in order to get the reserve at each one of these points in time, we actually need to consider three different components of the reserving process. So we'll start off with looking at just the unreported claims, so claims that you don't know what are there. So we basically need to figure out, okay, how many claims are there and what will those claims cost us? Secondly, we need to look at the claims that are on our system that we know very little about, and then we need to ask ourselves, okay, well, what is this actually going to cost us? And finally, 
uh, we need to look at the claims where we actually have an estimate for it and then decide, okay, given that we know that the estimate is this, is, is this amount, how much is it going to change in the future? Okay, so mathematically, it's written out like that because I like formulas. Uh, so if we just focus on how to get to the expected number of unreported claims, given that we know how many claim days has passed since the event and what peril we're looking for. Okay, so in this case, we'd assume that the reporting delay is going to be a, have a Poisson distribution. Um, this might not be the most realistic uh, expectation, and the Poisson distribution also has a bit of an error issue with it, as the longer your reporting delay average becomes, the more normally distributed it becomes as well. So you might have to look at getting something that's a bit positively skewed. So you might want to look at maybe using a continuous development factor such as a, a gamma distribution or a log normal distribution, or even maybe looking at something like a negative binomial model, which is a lot of times not used that frequently in GLMs, but it can be done. But you can then express this mean uh, or fit a factor to this mean with a GLM to identify, you know, what's the reporting delay, given that you know the payroll, given you know in which month the action sort of should have taken place, uh, and also then some of the calendar year impact. So, you know, if you're looking for claims in December, you'll only find them in January. So once we've got this probability of claims, and a, this of the probability of a claim from a certain date at the valuation date, we can then work towards getting the total number of claims. So the total number of claims would just be your reported claims divided by the percentage reported. And that then gets us to our unreported claims. So we expect that to be the percentage of unreported claims divided by the percentage of reported claims and then multiplied by your reported claims. But the factor that we've calculated there is maybe a bit of an issue because if you have a very low percentage of claims being reported, uh, you'll start pushing your unreported claims to infinity, which is not the case in practice. So just to illustrate like how volatile this could be, is if we look at a claim where you only have at the development point in time 20% uh, of your claims reported, and given that you're expecting 25 claims to have happened ultimately, uh, you'd expect more or less 300 claims at that point in time. Similarly, if you expect 75 claims, you'd expect in the region of 800 claims. So that doesn't actually work that well. Uh, so in order to address this, we're going to borrow from, uh, from the triangulation methods and kind of just the Bonnet to Ferguson method uh, to introduce a bit of credi credibility here. So we'll look at the total claims then being uh, a function of your reported claims plus the percentage that, of claims that are outstanding multiplied by the expected number of claims that you are going to get overall. The nice thing about this method here is the expected number of claims might already be available to you through your pricing team. So they have or hopefully have built the, the frequency models which are used to price your business. So you can just piggyback off of that, that model uh, to incorporate that into your reserving process. So the next item that we need to estimate is basically the expected amount of a claim. So here we'll kind of combine two of the different stages of the reserving process. So we'll look, combine the unreported claims and the reported but not authorized claims because it should follow a fairly similar process but you'll have a bit more information on the reported but not authorized claims. So here is the process is to actually split your claims out into the different cost types that will be associated with, with it at each stage. So the idea is to figure out whether you'll have a car hire component, whether you'll have a repair component, whether it will be a write-off claim, whether there will be a salvage, and then figure out the amount of that claim. 
So the probability uh, component itself is a fairly straightforward binomial model. So there you can actually look at what time of year did it happen. Uh, you could look at some of the demographics in your, of your book itself to help you identify this probability. And uh, that's basically it. Um, you can do it yourself and then tell me where I'm wrong. Um, and then you have the expected cost, the expected amount of each claim. So it's per cost type. Uh, so that's also why we've actually broken down the claim into these different components. Uh, it's just to remove that heterogeneity out of the uh, out of the model, so that you don't need to like readjust your model if anything in there changes a bit. So the advantage of this as well is you can be very reactive with respect to changes. So if you're introducing a new benefit or you're removing a benefit or changing a benefit, you actually just need to replace one little component of your model and you don't need to replace the full model itself. The nice thing here again is your pricing team might have done a lot of this work for you. So you can actually just piggyback off, off of what they've done in the past. And just to give you an idea is of the similarity between the data that the pricing team has available and the data that you will have available at a claim stage, uh, basically, you'll have asset details and policy details. The pricing team will have that, and their models can be reflective of that. Uh, and then you can also incorporate very basic information regarding the claim. So you can incorporate seasonality adjustments uh, when you're actually looking at your, your unreported claims, because at least you've made an assumption of on what day that claim will happen and in what month that claim will happen. Once a claim gets reported, you actually know a bit more about the claim. You know when the accident happened, at what time in the morning, whether there were other parties involved. You don't have an official estimate on any of those components yet, but surely this information can then be built on top of the models that you have already or that, that you've gotten from your pricing team uh, to just increase the fit or provide more uh, a better estimate with respect to that. Once you have your initial claim estimate, uh, you can then move on to actually using what the assessor did and then just adjusting that. So we'll talk to that in a bit more detail now. So your authorized but not settled claims. It's basically you have the case estimate that was set by whoever and then you need to change that by a factor to get it to what you will actually pay at the end of the day. So to figure out what actually drives this impact here, we need to think a bit about how this process works from getting that case estimate raised to actually setting, settling your claims. So we need to start thinking about who actually did the investigation. If a client told you, like, I think my claim is going to be, you know, 20,000 Rand, your claim might actually just be 2,000 Rand, and there might be a, quite a bit of variation around that. If you had a loss adjuster in, you know, some loss adjusters might be more accurate than others with respect to certain cause, but you can then allow for that in your model uh, and uh, attach a factor for a loss adjuster given a certain type of claim. So this here gets us to the point of this model doesn't actually have just reserving use. It has operational use as well if you go this route as well because then you can ensure that you're getting the right adjuster on the right claim to in order to reduce the volatility associated with your claims, which would then also help you reduce the volatility of your risk margin if you're actually holding one. Uh, the claims code could also be assessed by a service provider. So if the guy who's actually going to be providing the services uh, did the assessment, you might expect a very low volatility. Similarly, there might be no uh, investigation whatsoever or the system might have done it, which might indicate the claim was of very low value or very low volatility, so you're not expecting a lot of, lot of volatility there. So it's just basically following the clues that are in our data. Similarly, if it gets approved, if it's done by the claim agent, they might have gone through the claim line by line and taken off the items that they, the insurance company should actually not be paying for. But if an intermediary did it, they might actually... Uh, do the same, or if you've got bad intermediaries, they might add a, a couple of extra lines as well. 
And then finally, it depends on who is actually providing that service. So here you might see, uh, basically, if you have a cash payment, you kind of pay the cash and you're done with it. If you send your car to a service provider, there's a bit of variability and volatility there. So you might then identify service providers that are really efficient with respect to a certain type of claims, while others are actually not as efficient. So you can, again, incorporate this into your operational process as well. So in terms of modeling this, this item, uh, we kind of need to determine the, the change from the original case estimate to the final estimate. So we'll assume that ratio there has a gamma distribution, where the gamma would then be, or the parameter eta would then be a function of who did the loss adjustment, uh, you know, who's doing the repairs, where are you in the claim stage in terms of this journey, like how far are you out from your, from your expect, expected settlement date, et cetera. So that kind of gets us to the end of this the very, very theoretical journey, uh, and also probably to the biggest uh, problem with this journey, is that you need a lot of data for this. And this kind of data might not be available to a lot of insurers. But it's something too worth working towards, because again, this isn't actually something that's beneficial to the reserving team. It's actually beneficial to the pricing team, uh, having additional individuals helping out in building the models and maintaining those models, and then also to the operational or to the company as a whole, where you can ensure that your claim is being sent to the right loss assessor and to the right service provider. Uh, some of the other disadvantages are just basically uh, you will struggle with claims with long reporting delays. However, we have found a way that you can actually overcome this if you want to try this yourself. Uh, and the other disadvantage, it's fairly out of the norm. So I don't think your auditor will be happy if you just kind of give them this model and say, this is how I've calculated my reserve. But there's a lot of advantages to this as well. Is Yes, it is a lot of effort, but you do that effort once and then you can do minimal improvements. Uh, and by doing this, you can also be a lot more responsive to specific changes in your business. So you, don't, you can be very proactive in what you think your reserves are going to be, and you don't need to wait to see what that impact was in triangles. You can, because you actually know when what payment will happen, you can actually increase your liquidity management as well. So you could actually then make sure that you're only holding the amount of money in the bank uh, that you actually need, and then you can actually free up the other money to get higher returns somewhere else. You can basically crack your resolves in real time. So I don't know how many insurers have experienced the CAT event and then had an executive hounding them to get the expected total amount of a CAT in the middle of the month. So then you kind of have to go do your triangulations and whatever else, even though you're going to do it in 15 days again. With this, you don't need to because you'll already know and the model will tell you automatically if, you've run it, if you run it on a daily basis. And the biggest thing here is it's actually leveraging off of a lot of the, the work that has been done by other, other people inside the organization as well. So here, again, is you'll have shared models between the pricing team and between the reserving team. Uh, and even like when you have a large analytics team that are looking at provider efficiency and provider optimization, you'll consolidate these in one area and increase the synergies within your business and remove some of the silos that exist currently. So that brings us to the end of our presentation. So I hope we've convinced you how easy it is for you to improve your reserving by incorporating very simple linear regression into your, your, uh, your current process. And then I hope you've kind of been inspired to go to your company and say, look, we need more data because we want to track our reserves on a real-time basis through a state thing to actually reduce the effort for us going forward that we can be lazy like Luke. Cool. 
Uh, so if you have any questions, we'd be happy to take them. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I, I think as with uh, many things that we do, sometimes the journey can be more important than the destination. Just the uh, kind of the uh, process that you went through of thinking about uh, the claims journey and what things mattered uh, just gets your brain going in a, in a, a different way. I think at the very end you made a, um, a reference to perhaps actuaries or modelers being involved in more of the operational side. And I, d I do see a real connection to what you've done here to uh, uh, opportunities for actuaries to actually improve the claims process by uh, uh, developing metrics and developing uh, 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 process models similar to the one that, uh, that you have. One thing you mentioned uh, just very quickly in passing that we've seen matters quite a lot is when you're looking at the relationship between the final settlement amount to the case reserve, how close you are to that um, uh, final settlement uh, of the claim matters a lot. One of the classic uh, arguments that uh, we encounter is a, um, somebody on the claim side says, well, look, I've, I've compared for a large population of claims my reserve right before I closed it to what the final cost of the claim was. And I always close for less than that final reserve. Therefore, uh, we don't need any actuarial reserves because we're closing things for less than the final reserve. But of course, the reserve a month before that was not at that level. So that, uh, that timing effect, I think, is quite significant. But anyway, I enjoyed the thought process. Thank you. <laughs>